Printing with Moon Dust, and Seeing Black Hole Collisions. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. It takes a lot of fuel to send things into space. And as humans look to explore deep space, like the Moon and Mars, engineers are figuring out ways to lower the weight of deep space launches by building supplies in space. Redwire is one of those commercial companies developing technology to build things in space, called in situ, and has already demonstrated the ability to 3D print tools on the International Space Station. Now the company is looking towards a future moon mission and testing its 3D printers using simulated moon dust on the space station. We'll talk with Redwire's chief technology officer, Michael Snyder, about a mission launching this week to test out its additive manufacturing facility currently installed on the space station by loading the toaster oven-sized 3D printer with simulated moon dust. Then, earlier this year, scientists observed a black hole gobbling up a neutron star the first time an observation like this was ever made. It was done using gravitational wave observations, which are changing the way we see the universe. We'll talk with our panel of expert scientists from the University of Central Florida about the observation and why seeing something like this is so difficult. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Instead of bringing supplies to the moon, why not print them? Well, that's the plan for Redwire, a commercial space company that's developing 3D printing technology for space exploration. The company's been using a toaster oven-sized 3D printer on the International Space Station to test the idea of building things off-planet for astronauts. Now it hopes to take the next steps towards deep space exploration by testing the printer, called the Additive Manufacturing Facility, or AMF for short, using fake moon dust. The tools for the experiments are launching this week on Northrop Grumman's resupply mission from Wallops Island in Virginia. I spoke with Redwire CTO Michael Snyder ahead of that launch to talk about the experiment and what's ahead for Redwire's ambitions to print stuff on the moon. Yeah, so today we're launching the Redwire Regolith Print Project. Uh, It's a technology demonstration of on-orbit 3D printing utilizing regolith feedstock material. Uh, We're going to build three uh, test specimens that are in the form of these slabs that then will get uh, sent back down to Earth. Uh, they'll be sent to NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center to be cut up and made into uh, destructive test specimens, and we'll understand if there's a difference between the performance of this device on the Earth uh, compared to that in space. So you are essentially working on a 3D printer using moon dust as your material, right? Yes, uh, uh moon dust simulant uh we're using the an analog gotcha and and so kind of what what's the future use case of this uh why design a 3d printer that uses moon dust to begin with and <laughs> and, and tell me a little bit about the simulant that you're using for this experiment sure well this experiment utilizes the uh, jsc1a uh, lunar regolith simulant uh and a binder uh we think this is a pretty big step forward for uh, proving out technologies that are needed for sustainable human presence, uh, not only on the moon, but beyond that on on other uh, hard surfaces out in the solar system. Uh, we hope technologies like this enable building of key infrastructures such as habitats, landing pads, uh, roadways, you name it. Uh, and, and, you know, going going forward in the solar system, we need to be able to use the resources around us. So the idea with this experiment is most of the uh, 
concoction, the regolith and the and, uh, simulant and the binder, you know, doesn't have to be brought from Earth. You can just scoop up some local uh, dust and uh, utilize it right there. So walk me back, Michael. You have a history of building this technology and kind of laying the groundwork for this kind of in-space manufacturing. Um, take us a step back and, and, and what have you created and how have those previous lessons in, in previous technologies gone into creating this, this next chapter in in-space manufacturing? Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, you know, uh, Redwire started this uh, in 2014 uh, as the first uh, 3D printing technology demonstration off of Earth uh, on the International Space Station. Uh, we then leveraged what we learned from that to build a commercial manufacturing facility that's currently still up there. We launched in, uh, you know, about five years ago, and it's still producing parts regularly. And those two experiments kind of build off each other. All the technology we used in one kind of gets transferred to the other, expanded and, and improved. Uh, and this is no different. So we're actually utilizing the AMF in this experiment. We're building uh, where we built, sorry, a uh, replacement head, extruder head that, you know, that's the stuff where all the, the material comes out and deposits on a build tray and it snaps right into the AMF and we get to utilize that technology for this again. Uh, so, you know, we have this fundamental uh, thesis here where we don't want to reinvent the wheel and we want to keep building upon past successes. So a lot of our hardware contains uh, evidence of our, our past uh, developments, and that's pretty exciting. So, And this is, this is exciting, too, because this was kind of forged to work uh, 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 with, with Marshall Space Flight Center on the Artemis uh, program uh, because they really wanted to create this methodology for understanding how to print with regolith material as well as uh, analyzing it and uh, and kind of feeding that into the future of, of you know, human presence on the moon. Mm -hmm. And what things have you kind of printed um, from space already? Yeah, so we've printed a lot of things. Uh, so it ranges from uh, you know, test specimens like we're making for this, tools for the crew and experiments that are up there, as well as, you know, artwork. Uh, so it's it's been pretty exciting. It's a pretty exciting swath of, of, of items, and it's, you know, in the hundreds of, of, of items right now we've printed on orbit. Mm -hmm. what, what, um, what has to change um, with, your, uh, with your hardware when you're utilizing uh, this, this lunar regolith? I've got I've to think that you're using kind of a... a, a typical off-the-shelf plastic filament, um, you know, for these other experiments. How, how do things change when you go to use uh, lunar regolith or the lunar regolith simulant? Sure. The big thing that changes is the deposition system slightly different. Uh, it utilizes the same interfaces, same, some of the same components, but how we're, how we're heating and, and depositing the material on the build tray is slightly different from our, our, uh, other polymers that are the polymers we have on orbit. Uh, so that's those, that's the big change. Um, you know, the, the zero G environment or near zero G environment really produces some uh, interesting thermal characteristics that we have to uh, counter uh, and mitigate uh, for all of our deposition systems. But so that, that way each one is slightly different depending on the material we're using. Um, and this is no different. So it's, it's looks, it looks, it looks very different from our other uh, depositions heads we have up there, but works very similarly. Mm -hmm. Can you explain some of those thermal issues um, in a way that someone like me would understand? <laughs> what, are, what are some of the challenges sure. that you work sure. on? Some of the, the, the biggest uh, thermal challenge, you know, you have in, you know, 
a microgravity or zero g environment is you know hot air doesn't rise because there's no up right so hot air just stays there uh similarly if you need to cool something you have to force air to to uh, cool air to come in and hit it so just dealing with those uh uh, that difference is quite a big deal, uh, and that's that's pretty that's pretty much the biggest uh, challenge you have. Mm-hmm. What about the the challenges of of microgravity? I mean, how how do you what issues do you possibly have with that? And is it easier or harder to <laughs> to print stuff in in microgravity? Yeah, so so gravity is great for uh, settling out uh, disturbances in systems. Uh, so you know, and dampening out vibrations and these machines like to vibrate quite a bit. Uh, I mean, not 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 substantially in terms of like it's not nowhere close to a launch vibration, but in terms of mechanical vibration, you know, it has a little bit. Uh, so you you have to make a system that's very rigid and robust and able to co- and co- uh, counteract its own forces that it it it, ex- it exerts on itself. Mm-hmm. Um, now, does that mean that putting something like this on the moon would be easier? I mean, obviously, it's not microgravity but it's not earth gravity either i mean how do you how do you anticipate these printers working on the lunar surface yeah and in the, in the world of uh, in the world of gravity considerations yeah i think it would be a little easier to do on the lunar surface but the <laughs> lunar surface is uh, has its own challenges right so e- extreme dust dust environment uh, and and extreme thermal environment as well as you know it gets clocked with radiation a lot more than you know the space station does so you have those kind of three three things to consider there Mm-hmm. I mean, but I'm, I might be getting a little ahead of, of this particular experiment, right? Because you're trying to just see if the regolith will work with, with the current hardware. Are you going to be looking at those gravity considerations uh, in this iteration of the experiment? Yeah, so not, not not in the hardware that we've sent up there, but in terms of the overall project uh, and the future of the project that we're you know we have and working on internally, definitely we we've considered a lot of those things, including the dust mitigation and extreme thermal swings that you see on the lunar surface, because the, the goal here is to eventually fly a an iteration of this to the lunar surface to manufacture with and make sure that that capability is reliable as well as you know hands off, as hands off as it can be. You know we don't want to. Uh, you know, get the crew involved very much on these things because we want this to be an automated process. Mm-hmm. And, and Michael, tell me a little bit about the actual experiment itself that that you're launching um, on this mission. What are you sending up there, and what does it look like? How big is it? And and what are some of the things that you're going to be printing from the station? Yeah, so uh, so we're sending up basically a, a deposition head and some print trays uh, that then gets snapped into the AMF. Uh, in terms of size, it's not it's not that that large at all. It's probably close to like your your uh, coffee tumbler, and uh, a little shorter than that. Uh, and then a tr- the tray is uh, you know uh, what's a good what's a good size comparison? Uh, you know, like a piece of paper, but it's sli- slightly thicker, uh, obviously. Um, so so th- it's not that big, and it's 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 pretty. Uh, uh, pretty cool that it that it kind of fits in this small package because it goes into a, something that's about the size of a toaster oven on station uh, to do its job, uh, and it's all controlled on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and the AMF is the hardware that you've already sent up there, right? Correct. Correct. Gotcha. And 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 again, just just remind us again what what you're what you're printing, and then this stuff is coming back down to earth, right? So we're basically printing three test slabs, and these slabs are. Uh, 
thick and planar uh, piece of material that then get brought back down, most likely on a, a Dragon capsule, uh, and then sent to Marshall Space Flight Center, where they'll, they'll actually cut them up into traditional mechanical test specimens, and then they'll be destructively tested there at NASA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael, we've we've talked about this before on the show, but you know it seems like down here on Earth, um, you know, three D printing is coming becoming far more accessible to the regular person. Um, does that kind of development of this technology um, kind of have an effect on what you're able to do from space? I guess what I'm asking is, as as this technology continues to develop for the consumer down here, does it make it easier for for someone like you to get this technology up into space and, and, and make these developments. Absolutely. Uh, so any development done in the commercial space, we try to leverage as much as possible. You know, once again, we don't try to reinvent the wheel if we don't have to. Uh, and, you know, this this spur of 3D printing on the ground has really allowed us to to leverage component suppliers as well as material suppliers to build things as well as, you know, even some of the tech we integrate into our designs to, to make them you know work better. Mm-hmm. And and I mean, is this the future of space exploration? Why why is it so important that agencies and commercial companies have the ability to build stuff in space rather than lugging it up into orbit? Yeah, I mean, it's it's vital to future infrastructure that we can produce things in space. Uh, we don't want to be shipping things. Uh, back and forth from from Earth uh, to, to their destination. It's a lot more efficient to use the local resources. I mean, it, it needs to get close to like an Earth-like environment where you're not uh, you don't have to you know wait weeks to get a piece of lumber. Uh, I mean, nowadays that may be that may be <laughs> a challenge, but you know <laughs> traditionally traditionally you can go pick some up, and you know all, most of that's sourced kind of regionally. So you don't want to have to you know send off from. Uh, from the lunar surface to Earth and, and have them send back, you know, a, a vital piece of structural material when you can just build it in place. And when you look beyond that, you need to be able to build spares, build any on-demand tools you need uh, that could be mission essential or vital to human life. Uh, uh, you want to be able to do that right there in place. You don't want to have to, you know, waste critical time waiting for, for a shipment to come. Mm-hmm. And finally, Michael, this this experiment, it's as you described, it's it's small, about the size of a, a piece of paper, um, and it's being you know conducted from low Earth orbit on the International Space Station. Uh, but this is something that you want to put on the moon. I mean, how do you scale this up, and what are the kind of the next steps to do that? Yeah, it actually scales pretty nicely. Um, so the uh, the the thing that You'd have to adjust with the scaling of kind of the geometry and the and the the output is just power. Um, so the next the next steps in that front is actually just develop systems that can build slightly larger things, and and we have ways to do that. We're working on uh, our Arconaut program, which actually is a spacecraft that builds part of itself uh, as, and assembles part of itself. And part of that that mission is building a structure that's actually longer uh, than the three D printer that's on board uh, is in terms of in terms of length. Um, um, and th- uh, technology like that are, are going to be leveraged to build very large structures. So you don't have to build a box to build a smaller box. You send up a uh, you know robotic capability that can build objects much larger than itself. Mm-hmm. And if you are able to make this work and your printers are on the moon, have you thought about what you're going to print first from the lunar surface? 
Uh, we have not thought about that in detail. I mean, I've thought about that in private, uh, and I mean, I, it's pretty, it's pretty uh, uh, not exciting to most folks, but it's exciting to me. Obviously, we'd probably be testing some candidate structural uh, specimens and some test articles that you could test right there in situ, uh, utilizing the same capability that prints it to understand, you know, how how the structure, the structural integrity of those parts. That way, we can utilize those uh, in some simulations to build real things with them in the future. Gotcha. Well, best of luck with with the experiment uh, launching today. We've been speaking with Michael Snyder. He's the CTO at Redwire Space. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brendan. Appreciate it. Still to come, a black hole gobbles up a neutron star, and scientists got the chance to see it. Well, sort of. Our panel of expert physicists explains when Are We There Yet continues here on WMFE, America's space station. Earlier this year, scientists observed a black hole gobbling up a neutron star, the first time an observation like this was ever made. It was done using gravitational wave observations, which are changing the way we see the universe. Well, kind of. Here to explain, we're joined by UCF physicists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addie Dove, Josh Caldwell, and Jim Cooney. Cooney begins the conversation explaining just how exciting this observation is. Medium exciting. Medium oh. exciting. I know. <laughs> it's a little bit of a letdown. I've... Well, so, of course, <laughs> scientists uh, have observed black holes smacking into other black holes. And, of course, all these observations that the Brendan's referring to is are gravitational wave observations. So we've seen black holes crashing into black holes. We've seen a couple of neutron stars smacking into neutron stars. The oddball left out is, of course, the black hole smacking into the neutron star. Uh, so we expect that to occasionally happen. We hadn't seen it yet until quite recently when we saw... Two of them, almost just a couple weeks apart. Uh, so that part is actually kind of neat. The fact yeah. that we saw two of them really close back to back is 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 cool. The fact that we saw one is, is kind to of be, expected. To be expected. I mean, a, a neutron star is almost a black hole. Right. So, you know, so it doesn't count. It can, <laughs> it's the same thing, right? It's yeah. a, well, I'm just saying, you know, if you're seeing black holes merge, you know, you're going to see a neutron star and a black hole merge. Mm. So it's maybe a little surprising it took this long. What's the relative? Well, I also have to say that the things. fact that it's only medium medium exciting just shows how jaded we already are about these like cool gravitational right. wave discoveries <laughs> after like a few years. That's we're like, true. That's true. That's true. Old hat yeah. That's true. yeah you remember how excited ago, we're we're like, we were? Oh my gosh! Yeah. I can't believe we saw this. Thing. Let Let's step back and and explain how sure. these observations <laughs> are made uh, because it, it has only been the past half decade that right. that scientists have been able to see this stuff. So yeah. how do you see these? giant things smacking into each other you don't right. see it yeah yeah That's see right. is the wrong thing right yeah, yeah. we're not we're not uh, this is not electromagnetic radiation this is not photons not light this is ripples in space time right so when when big things collide they cause the space around them and the time around them to wiggle mm -hmm. uh, and this uh ligo uh in concert with virgo and actually now a new one in japan as well yeah. uh these observatories detect these ripples in space-time as they go by, and the technology is just absolutely mind-blowing. I, I still don't fully believe it works. I, don't. <laughs> I, don't. I, don't. I, want to I mean, it does. It's, it's phenomenal, but... I can't measure things to the, the centimeter scale. I don't know how they measure things. <laughs> right. So the, the, the ripples in space-time are very, 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 very tiny. Oh, so tiny. Uh, you know, we're talking, like, the scale of a proton over the size of the... Uh, Earth or something like that, or even smaller. That's wild. And yeah. and so uh, they they use lasers in these 
observatories, these observatories, to see that stretching, to see the wavelength of the light changing uh, as the space that the light is moving through gets stretched. But it's not just it's, – it's actually any redis- sudden sort of redistribution of matter – causes those ripples, uh, right. right? So the collision is a with big, massive things. They smack into each other very quickly. So then you have a big, rapid redistribution of matter that produces that pond in the – stone in the pond ripple effect. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, anything, you know, wave your hands and you just made gravitational waves, but those are undetectable, of course. <laughs> right. so, but, mm-hmm. but big things hitting each other do cause – uh, significant ripples. And of course, big things, really we mean massive things. Uh, yeah, they're not that actually big. No. The neutron star is stars about the size of a city, right? And a black hole, even smaller. Um, but what? they're very, very massive. <laughs> <laughs> You'd expect that, like, when you think of it, that there are these... Yeah, you think huge, of the black hole as this yeah. monster thing that's gobbling up stuff. The black hole is actually quite tiny. Stellar black holes. Right. And that's what yeah. these things, that's what right. these are. These mm-hmm. are black holes that are maybe 10 or 20 times the mass of our sun. But that means they're really only a few kilometers ac- across. Yeah. So that makes the observation even more compelling, that, you know, right? Well, I mean, that's that's yeah. getting back to we're not actually seeing okay. that two kilometer thing. Mm-hmm. What we're seeing is the mass and the mass is big. Yeah. Uh, so it's but, tens of times the mass of the sun being suddenly jolted in mm-hmm. such a way that produces this ripple in space-time, uh, which in the sort of scale of space-time ripples might be big, but those are still super, super tiny. i, I got to share Brendan's amazement with this, by the way, because <laughs> not only these things, I mean, they're massive, a few, 10 times, 20 times the mass of the sun, but they're often hundreds of millions or billions of light years away. This is right. like halfway across the observable universe. Yeah. And still, we're able to detect these ripples. This is right. an absolutely yeah. phenomenal achievement. I'm glad we're sharing amazement and not dread or fear today. But <laughs> <Right>. no, <laughs> they're very far away, so it's, yeah, yeah. it's we're all far just away. amazement. I keep thinking we were just talking about Loki before the TV show mm-hmm. before this, and I keep thinking of that scene where he gets punched in the face, and they show it in slow mo. Oh, right. and you see the ripples in Ripple. his face. Yes. <laughs> it's like that. Massive like things that. colliding and ripples. That's yes. right. So, I mean, we're we're starting to see or observe all these interesting things. So we've seen. The two black holes colliding, the mm-hmm. stars colliding, and now we've seen them both colliding. And and it, we've only been five years into using these gravitational wave observations. What's yeah. ahead for this technology and what we may be able to observe in the short-term future and the long-term future? Yeah, one of the cool things about like the LIGO observatories um, and, and the other facilities as well is that as we've been doing this for yeah half a dozen years or whatever now at this point, and they, there are sort of groups of observations because in between they sort of shut the facilities down and upgrade something to make it even more sensitive and be able to detect even higher, um, like smaller objects and smaller mass things. Um, so as we go, we figure out what's working and then what needs to be updated and it makes this, the these sort of telescopes or observatories even more sensitive. Um, and so they're going to continue to do that sort of within the capabilities of what we can do here on Earth, having the two facilities that make up LIGO in the U.S., plus the Virgo facility in uh, Italy. 
I think, in Europe. 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 <laughs> um, and now this Japanese facility means you can also do a lot of cool, like, triangulation. So if you detect it at all of the facilities, it gives you a better sort of ho- homing beacon for where it came from in the galaxy. Um, and I think the Japanese observatory didn't observe these because it's sort of just recently come right. online. Rec- yeah, it just, just um, turned on. And then the future is also space-based versions of these, hopefully, where you can put telescopes up in space. Yeah, yeah there are but, some limits as to what, you know, these LIGO and its companions – can only see so much uh, because of the size of the observatories and, and, and so forth. But space-based ones where you make the uh, the laser arms much, much lar- larger are going to allow you to see entirely different kinds of gravitation, not different kinds, but different wavelengths of gravitational wave, different strengths different, of gravitational right. different different sources for those things. So gravitational wave observing is is the thing of the future. Not yeah. the thing, but and, a thing. And one of the important things about these types of observations is they often do follow-up observations or coincident observations with other telescopes, invisible light, and other wavelengths of, of light. Okay, that was going to be my question. Is you, can you follow it up with other yeah. telescopes? Yeah. yeah, so we often look with other telescopes then to see, do we see signatures of these events um, to see if we can actually detect anything else. Like there's little, there's a little warning that goes off when they've detected something at LIGO and other observatories can look for things. Mm-hmm. And with this event in particular, it was really interesting because the black hole swallowed the neutron star, but there was no light signature basically. Hmm. So it's sort of like it went and there was no sign of it. It ate it all in one right. bite. Right. And that, it's that's tough. It's tough for that one. Yeah. <laughs> I know, right? That it's little tough to tiny say. black hole. <laughs> Right, because when when black holes collide, we see no light whatsoever. Yeah. When when the neutron stars collide, we do see light. Yeah. So the question is, this one, this is the mixed one. Are we going to see light? Unfortunately, it's a little tough to say whether they really produce light or not in general, because this, these are so far away that maybe yeah. the light is just too dim. Yeah. Uh, or maybe they're not producing much light because they just it just like entirely engulfed the thing and whatever. But it's just a little cupcake. Uh, but the more of these we see, the better we'll be able to say that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Jim, I'm going to finish up the segment with you here. You said that this was a medium excitement mm-hmm. event. Medium what would be a high excitement event for you? What do you What do you want to observe with <laughs> with these gravitational wave <laughs> sensors? Oh wow! Um, so th- you've caught me off guard. I don't know. So, so <laughs> I'm excitable. I, I know. Say, well, that's the thing is, I, I I used all of my excitement the first time that yeah. LIGO observed something. So I mean, we were all so greatly excited. Uh, the second time I was even still pretty darn excited because now there's another, but now that we've seen dozens of these events with, with LIGO, you know, I'm jaded. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there are any other c- categories of big events that we're going to be able to see with LIGO. So black holes colliding, neutron stars colliding and neutron and black right. hole. But what about the intermediate mass black hole? They're still sort of elusive. So can LIGO see it like a 500 to 500 mass black hole? Stellar mass yeah, black holes maybe. collide. And that would be uh, the first sort of detection of objects like that that we see in any way at all. Okay. I like so that So that would be that uh-huh. would, So we've seen – I feel like Jim's still going to be medium excited about you know, that. <laughs> 220 stellar mass black holes collide and then we see the supermassive black holes in galaxies. But we haven't really seen things that are sort of hundreds or thousands of times the mass of the sun in black holes gravitational waves would be one way to see those objects uh-huh. for the first time if they exist did you hear that universe step up your game we need to impress gems <laughs> yes. that's right that's right <laughs> we've been speaking with jim cooney josh caldwell and addie dove they're physicists at the university of central florida and they host the podcast walk about the galaxy thank you all for being here Thanks. thank you you can get their podcast wherever you get your podcasts or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com and just to mention ucf is a financial sponsor of this podcast 
Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to this show's podcast feed and never miss an episode. Do that on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review. That's how more people get exposed to Are We There Yet? The conversation continues online. We're on Facebook. Search for Are We There Yet? Podcast. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at A-W-T-Y space. Are We There Yet? Space. Get it. And there's always more space news on our website at WMFE.org slash space. Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from Latoya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. And until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>